I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Father, as we come to you this morning again, we do so with faith that you are a God who is gracious and compassionate, that your works are truly wonders. And yet, Father, we live in a world in which it seems that the evil one is having his way. We know that you are sovereign and supreme. And yet, Father, your divine intervention is greatly needed in this day and in this hour. As we hear of more uh, tragedies in Israel and uh, all of the other parts of the world which are experiencing so much oppression, Father, we pray for your divine intervention. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that the shalom of Christ will spread from within the, the framework of the church to incorporate those Lord, that you are preparing to enter your kingdom. Father, now we ask you to be present here with us, to guide us as we continue a study of your word, that it will speak to us and that will transform us according to the working of your Holy Spirit within us. In Christ's name, amen. David had been a vassal to the king of Gath, and his 600 men were committed to him and with him. And you remember as we complete the 29th chapter of the book of 1 Samuel that he and his men had been collected up here at Aphek. God had made it so that David did not have to remain there and he did not have to participate in the battle that was going to ensue between the Philistines and Israel. And so David and his men were given the, were not only given the right, they were commanded to return home. And so they began the march back from Aphek to Ziklag. And I pointed out that even though we don't know exactly where Ziklag was, it was approximately 50 miles south of Aphek in the, um, in the Negev. As I emphasized when we looked at that passage, you can just put yourselves in the place of those 600 men. Now they've been away from their wives and family uh, for several weeks at least, and so they were greatly anticipating the reunion uh, with their wives, with their children, being home again. And of course, they were dumbfounded and they were emotionally shattered when they returned and found that the city of Ziklag had been destroyed and that everybody was missing. All their animals were missing, all the goods within their houses were missing, and of course, most of all, their wives and their children had been kidnapped. David was just as, as distraught as his men were. And yet David wisely chose to seek the guidance of the Lord. And so he, he called Abiathar to come and bring the Urim and the Thummim, and he then through that sought wisdom from God as to what to do. What should we do, O Lord? Shall we pursue these people, whoever they are? And if we do, shall we overtake them? Will we recover our goods? And God said yes to all of those questions. Do it. When David shared God's command with his men, his men decided that it would be far better to recover their, make the efforts to recover their families than to satisfy their, their, their anger at the moment by stoning David to death, which the scripture says they were actually anticipating or contemplating doing. Which, just, I mean, this illustrates the fickleness of human beings. 
It, it's it. You're reminded of this as as we uh, go into the Easter season, obviously next spring, uh, <laughs> and. You know, you have Palm Sunday when they're all saying hallelujah, hosanna in the name of the Lord, and then just a few days later, they're crying crucify him. David's men had been led so brilliantly by David for all these years, and now within a few moments, literally, they're, they're deciding that they should probably stone him. But God, of course, prevailed and uh, convinced them otherwise. And so without resting, they set out in pursuit of the Amalekites. They didn't know who they were pursuing, of course. The scripture tells us who they were pursuing. They wouldn't know who they were pursuing until they found this, this man we'll be reading about again out in the desert. So they forced marched these uh, 15 or so miles from approximate location of Ziklag to what is called the Brook Besor, which runs through here. You can't really see it very well here, but runs through here. They, they forced marched until they arrived at the ravine of the brook, Besor, and crossing that, 200 of his men said, we just can't go any further, we're just exhausted, we can't take another step, we're going to have to stop and rest. And David and the other 400, uh, apparently running on emotional energy or whatever it was, decided they weren't going to stop because the longer they rested, the greater would be the advantage of the kidnappers. And so the 200 were told to stay here. We'll leave a little extra of the stuff. that, that We'll lighten our load and, and leave some of the stuff behind. You will guard the stuff. You'll stay here. And the rest of us will proceed to pursue the Amalekites. So as we read in the 30th chapter of 1 Samuel at verse 11, the scripture tells us now they found an Egyptian in the field. And they brought him to David and gave him bread, and he ate, and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. And then his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on that which belonged to Judah, on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. This particular passage helps us to understand that God guides his people by many different methods. God could have guided David in this whole situation to the Amalekites with a dream. He could have given David a dream whereby he in, you know, visualized where the Amalekites were. God could have spoken to him further through the Urim and the Thummim and pointed him the route to go. God could have sent a prophet or given to uh, the prophet Nathan, who apparently was with David most of the time, uh, given to him uh, a word to share with David. He could have led him by a pillar of fire. That had been experienced before by Israel. Or he could have used the Hansel and Gretel method. And that's by encouraging some of the kidnapped to kind of drop something surreptitiously here and surreptitiously there. So there'd be kind of a trail of things that would be identified by David and his men as, as they chased after the Amalekites. But God didn't choose any of those methods. 
And get, instead, God allowed an Egyptian to become ill, so ill he couldn't perform his function, and to cause his Amalekite master just to say, hey, well, you're useless to me, just get out of here, and, and leave him behind. Whether the Amalekite figured that the guy would, would die shortly, and therefore he couldn't, you know, dead men can tell no tales kind of idea, or whether he just wasn't thinking. Whatever the case was, he just left this man behind. And God, whatever the sickness was this man had, he was, had to be so sick he couldn't function or else he wouldn't have been left behind. And yet he was stranded for three days and three nights with no bread and no water. How did in the world did he survive? Well, I think God helped him to survive. It's interesting, even though the Negev is not, quote, the desert, and we don't know what time of year this was. It probably uh, wasn't the dead of summer, or um, at least it would have been more obvious that God kept this man alive. But when you get into those hot desert areas, and if you're left without water, you don't survive very long at all. Uh, and yet, here this man was, and he was uh, found by David's men. I think what this does, this example, helps us to understand that we dare not limit the ways by which God may lead us, the ways by which God may show us what we ought to do. God is very creative. And God places many signposts in our lives. And I think sometimes we blow right past them because our mind is somewhere else. We're not walking by faith as we ought to at the moment. But I believe that if we're people of prayer and we're people of the Word of God, we will not miss the signposts that God puts in our lives. We will not miss the ways by which He is choosing to guide us. We often quote Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I don't know how many people I've heard say these were their life life verses, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But I wonder how many of us, whether we've chosen that to be our life verse or not, have ever thought of what it means to incorporate into the warp and the woof of our being what it says there in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That, that passage says, trust in the Lord with some of your heart occasionally. <laughs> no, it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And it says, do not lean on your own understanding. It doesn't say there, when you feel like it, don't lean on your own understanding. Or when you, you're at a crisis and, and there's no other way to go, don't lean on your own understanding. It just says flat out, don't lean on your own understanding. And then it says, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. And it says, he will make your path straight. He will. So as, you, as we go through that and we find the all and the own and the will there and we put the stress there, suddenly this whole passage takes on a new meaning, I believe. If we expect God to guide us in our lives day by day, I, I think we cannot pick and choose as to when we're going to lean on Him and when we're going to trust on our own wisdom and our own understanding. God gives us the free will to do that, but I think it's a foolish thing to do. We must trust Him completely all the time. And as I thought about that, this, this psalm came to my mind, and we've looked at it before, but let me just turn to it again for a moment. Psalm 113. Because I think Psalm 113 teaches us, at its foundation level, two major attributes of God. Psalm 113, we read, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord be praised. Now, verse 4 says, 
The Lord is high above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? God is transcendent. God is above all. He is beyond all. He is the creator of it all. God is, of course, you know, infinite. But as we read on in verse 6, it says, Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the earth, in the heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes, with princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. So here we find in the first half of the psalm a statement that God is, is above all. He is mighty. He is imminent. He is he's, you know, beyond comprehension. And yet in the latter part of it says, but he's here. He's humbled himself. He's come amongst us. He cares about the pregnant woman. He cares about you and he cares about me in our everyday activities. He is here with us. He walks with us. Just as Jesus said, I'm with you even to the end of the age. I think we can trust God. We can trust the Spirit of God. We can trust Jesus, however you want to put it, to be our personal guide throughout our lives. Because he is not only like Allah, as you know if you've studied Islam, Allah is transcendent. Allah is out there. Allah is beyond all. Allah is not a personal God in Islam. The Muslims don't talk about Allah, you know, Allah, would you guide me today? Allah, would you do this? Allah, I love you. You know, they have the five times a day, they go through the ritual prayers, but it's not a personal relationship they have with this being that is out there. Um, they view Allah just as the a transcendentalist viewed God back at the time of the Enlightenment here in, in America and in Europe where God was viewed as creator of all and the prime mover got everything going, but prayer is just flowery speech. It's it, it just to encourage us. It doesn't go past the ceiling. God's not going to intervene in our daily lives, according to the transcendentalists. And so it is in Islam. But that's not the God we know if we've studied scripture, if we've spent time meditating on who God really is. And David understands this too. And so God, David has sought the seeking, has sought the wisdom of God, and God has provided his direction. The psalmist also writes in Psalm 48, verse 14, For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide unto death. He will be our guide unto death. Let's read on at verse 16 of 1 Samuel 30. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and he rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. We don't know, of course, how far to the southwest uh, the Amalekites had gotten by the time David caught up with them. 
I think that probably they had at least crossed what is called the Brook of Egypt, which is a wadi out here, uh, which pretty much delimits the very southernmost edge of, uh, of Israelite influence and brings one then into the true northern Sinai area. By, by the time you get down here, it's pretty dry. So the Brook of Egypt, that's kind of overstating it to call a, a brook. It's a wadi in which there's occasional water. But it is a major ravine. They had probably crossed that. And most likely they had moved this way, down towards the way of Tushur, rather than following along the way of the sea, because this is a much more popular and heavily used route. And so they're going to go more off the beaten track, certainly, to try to avoid detection. And so they probably moved down into this way. So who knows? They could have been anywhere in this area in here, probably, at the time that David finally caught up with them. I think they had discovered from their captives that the Philistines and the Israelites had traveled to the north and, and were preparing for a major battle far to the north, a hundred miles away. The Philistines and the Israelites were gathering for a major battle. In fact, I think it is possible that the Amalekites have, have, may have gained this intelligence that the Philistines were gathering for war to the north and Israel was, was, was counteract, counteracting that move before they even made the raid on the Negev, knowing therefore that if they made the raid while all the forces were way to the north, they would meet light resistance, maybe no resistance, which apparently is what happened. And on top of that, by the time the battle was fought up in the north, whoever won it, and by the time that was all over and, and the fallout had occurred and they came back and discovered what would happen, oh, the Amalekites would have been long gone and their trail would have gone colder than an ice cube. I think they figured that if organized pursuit ever did occur, it would be far too late to ever find them, and probably so late they wouldn't even bother to try to follow them. What they didn't count on, of course, was the God of Israel, the God of David. You can't hide from him. Scripture says his eyes are run true and to and fro over the whole surface of the earth, which is simply, of course, a, a way of stating that God is omniscient which is a comfort, by the way. Even though sometimes we wish God didn't know some things about us, it, it nevertheless is a comfort because if we know God knows all things, then why not go before him and why not ask forgiveness? Why not confess our sin? We're not hiding anything anyway. Well, we have to remember now, these Amalekites who have made this raid on the Negev, they're traveling heavy. This isn't just a band of raiders all riding on camels who can fly across the landscape at... Uh, at a rapid speed, they are now pushing large numbers of captives and gigantic herds of animals. And you just can't tie all the animals to camels and go riding off with all these sheep and goats and cows hanging off your camel, you know. You've got to push the animals. They're going to have to walk. The standard is if you can keep the animals going, you might go a mile an hour, maybe. A mile an hour is about the best you can push a herd. And so they're not moving too quickly across the landscape. David and his men, however, are unencumbered, especially after they left the 200 behind and left with them with all the extra food and whatever else they were carrying with them. Uh, they just took rations for a few days because they were going to make a lightning ra light raid uh, to try to catch up with the Amalekites. I believe that David's men could travel three to four times faster than the Amalekites could travel. 
And so even though they were at least three days behind, we don't know exactly how, when the raid occurred on Ziklag. But assuming the raid had just occurred on Ziklag and that the smoke was still rising from the ashes, so that they weren't terribly far ahead, I think David and his men would catch up with the Amalekites within at least two days, probably maximum, <coughs> moving at the speed that they could move. So confident were the Amalekites that they didn't establish a battle perimeter, but they spread themselves, the scripture says, all over the land. Give me room here for my party. Spread out, you know, all over the landscape. Pick a spot and settle in. This, of course, made it impossible for them to put adequate pickets out, to put sentinels out here and there to, to be prepared in case there was an attack. There was no way you could, you know, without taking half the manpower, spread a ring out around this large of an encampment. So they probably didn't even bother. Secondly, they were prematurely allowing themselves to celebrate over the huge amount of goods that they had captured. All these people who now are going to be their slaves and women are going to be their concubines and all these animals and whatever gold and silver and other goodies they ripped off. They, they, I mean, they just, they were so successful they could hardly believe it. They had swept through that area and they'd raided all these towns with no resistance and they just couldn't believe their good fortune. I'm sure they were praising their God by giving themselves over, however, to unfettered eating and drinking and dancing. They rendered themselves incapable of adequately responding to an attack. I think what David did is he came upon this encampment. The scripture says that he came at twilight. So to me, twilight is just before sunset. And he's coming up here. And he spots them in. I, I think what he did was reconnoiter the camp and, and then gather his men together and decide what part of the camp to hit first. And he took all of his manpower and struck one piece of the camp at a time. The attack took over 24 hours. And the scripture says that all but 400 of the Amalekites were killed. I think this tells us that the widespread condition of the camp being so spread out geographically and the noise of the dancing and, and the partying allowed one portion to be assaulted without alerting the other parts of the camp that anything was even going on. And so David's men were able to move through and, and kill the men, the Amalekite warriors there in one portion of the camp, and then move on to another. Of course, gluttony and drunkenness were also hindering the Amalekites because they were probably, you know, had several sheets in the wind and, and were so full they could hardly move. And so the Amalekites were badly confused and uh, unable to respond. I think what we can see in all of this, I mean, we have to look behind the scenes, of course, to see this. But I think we can see the hand of God in this, lulling the Amalekites into feeling that they were safe, a sense of security, a sense of revelry. But we have to remember there is spiritual warfare going on here too. The, the enemy is also on the scene. Wherever God is at work, there Satan is. You know, Satan's not off in la-la land uh, trying to <coughs> confuse the penguins in Antarctica, you know, while things are going on elsewhere. He is where God is at work. Sometimes when you watch the penguins, you think Satan's there too, <laughs> but they fight with each other. Uh, yeah. Yeah, was, there's a commercial that shows the penguins and they're all marching out across this thing in, in single file. <laughs> out across the landscape. But Satan could see what was happening. He could see that 
the Amalekites who had, he had used to do this dastardly deed were about to be assaulted and that the conditions were not good for his people. And so Satan certainly would have alerted them. He would have motivated them. He would have done something to get them going. And I believe God bound him. God said, no, you're not doing that. I am accomplishing my purpose here. It is interesting to note that 400 Amalekite warriors escaped on camel back. Now, David, there's no indication that David had any animal power with him. He wasn't riding camels or horses or donkeys. There's no indication that he was anyway. And so there wasn't any way he's going to catch up with 400 guys that ride off on camels. Now, why did God allow 400 to escape? Well, we can speculate, but that's about all we can do. But we're told that all the others were killed. Now, think of the implication of this. All of the other Amalekites were killed, except 400. 400 sounds like just a, probably a, a, a little a unit that got away out of the whole mass. How many men did David have? 400. And so to me, that really looks like another Gideon-style victory, where the few destroyed the many. Because if 400 fled, that directly implies that a whole lot more died. Because otherwise, why wouldn't the 400 have attacked David rather than fleeing from David, especially if they were on camelback? Again, I think we can see nothing here but divine intervention. God is at work, and God was enabling David to win the great victory. I think furthermore, we see the hand of God in the preservation of all the spoil, all of the goods. The scripture says absolutely nothing was lost, either small or great, male or female. Nothing was lost. It was all preserved, whether it be people, goods, or animals. Everything was recovered. I think, of course, the rapidity of David's pursuit and the suddenness of his attack, you know, helped that to be true. But just think of the chaos in the bedlam. Much of the attack occurred during the night. What, what is going to prevent some of the captives from being trampled or killed or stabbed or whatever in the midst of all of this? What's going to prevent animals from being scattered out in the wilderness? What's going to prevent the 400 from riding off with as much of the goods as they could carry? It was God who prevented any of the captives from being killed. It was God who prevented any of the goods from being carried off. When you think about that for a minute, you know, we have a tendency sometimes to think that God is so busy he can't be concerned about my problems and my needs. Yet God cared enough that not even the smallest item that belonged to the people from Ziklag was lost. It was all recovered. You know, that, that gets us down to the nitty-gritty of, of God's concern for us. Of course, the scripture tells us he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows how many hairs are on your head. So obviously God cares about the details of our life. And that's why we must commit everything to Him each and every day and seek His wisdom and seek His guidance in every decision that we make. Well, David was the leader. David was the sheik, if you will, of this band of uh, hoodlums called David's men. And all the spoil gained in this victory was called, according to the scripture, David's spoil. Well, if you take a study of history, primarily before modern times when you have generals who receive big salaries and, and they're responsible to their governments and so forth. But you go back through the course of history, you discover that uh, the great generals of history received everything they captured. 
If they captured a town, it was theirs. If they captured the goods, it was theirs. And they had the right to divvy it up amongst their followers. You go back to the days of, for example, piracy. The pirate captain took the lion's share of, the, of what was captured and then he divvied it up to his crew according to their rank in the crew. This is the way it has been done throughout all of history, except now in the modern age, at least in modern countries. Uh, we don't do that so much. But that's the way it's been, and so that was the way it was understood. Uh, David should have the lion's share of the loot, if it were. What David did with this responsibility would prove to be a powerful statement concerning the character of this man. Most men and women, and that would probably include us, cannot be trusted either with great wealth or with great power. Because wealth and power have an insidious nature and there is a ubiquitousness of greed and selfishness in the human race. I think if we're all honest, we have to say down inside us, sneaking around in there, is a little bit of selfishness and a little bit of greed. And unless we watch it all the time and we keep ourselves in submission to the Lord, that, that can kind of creep out. And, and sometimes it shows up in the way we react, we react to people in various situations. So many have been corrupted down through time by the access of wealth and power that they have failed to achieve true greatness. There have been kings and queens and leaders of various times, uh, uh, types down through the course of history who might be lauded as great men and women today had they not succumbed to greed and to power. Most of us, of course, know the, the legend of Midas, you know, the king back in the, uh, up in what is today Turkey, who according to the legend desired so much to be wealthy that when the gods gave him a, 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 a wish, he said, I wish that everything I touched would turn to gold. And of course, you know the scenario. He couldn't eat because all his food turned to gold. He didn't dare touch his child because she turned to gold, you know. Everything turned to gold and suddenly, of course, he became aware of the fact that the great, the important things in life have nothing to do with wealth or power. And yet, it's like the old phrase, well, you know, a million dollars might not really do that much, but I'd sure like to have a chance to discover how much it would do, you know. David faced a major test. This is David's spoil. So what are you going to do with it, David? Verse 21. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. And David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us who has kept us and delivered into our, hand, into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And so it has been from that day forward. And he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel 
to this day. This passage reveals to us, and the next passage, which we won't get to today, at the end of the chapter, further reveals some of the wisdom and faith that David exhibited, which would be characteristic of him as king in Israel. Again, as we have talked about before, this period of time between the time David was anointed by Samuel to succeed Saul as king, David being anointed 10 to 15 years ahead of time, that interim period was the period which formed and shaped David. That is the period of time that built on a foundation that was already in his life of being committed to God and, and committed to his country, but maturing that faith and maturing that commitment so that after 10 or 15 years of having to run from Saul and, and, and wonder why God isn't delivering him and, and learning that there are people you can trust and there are people you can't trust, that all of that was the training ground for David so that he might be a better king. He was leading the rescued people and all the goods back towards Ziklag. And the scripture here tells us that he and the 400 men who had effectively carried out the battle and defeated the Amalekites came back to the brook Besor. And the 200 men who had been behind had set up camp there and they came out to, to greet them. And I think the 200 were overjoyed. You were successful. Here's my wife. Here's my children. And, and, and they had a wonderful reunion. It was very emotional. But there was a really wet blanket that was thrown over the whole thing. Because when the 400 men who were with David came into the camp that the 200 had set up, some of them, which the scripture here des describes to us as wicked and worthless men. We, we like to think that all of David's guys were good guys, you know, all like David. Not so. They displayed a powerful spirit of, of greed and disdain towards those who were so weak in their opinion that they, they stayed behind. They didn't want to face battle. And so they had unilaterally decided that the 200 should only get their wives and their kids back, and that's it. They weren't even going to return to them their own goods, let alone their portion of the spoil beyond. Remember, what was recovered was not just what was taken from Ziklag, but what was from taken, from, taken from the whole Negev, the Negev of Caleb and the Negev of the Carathites. There was a huge area of hundreds of miles that they had raided, numerous villages. And so they were pushing a gigantic herd of animals as well as people and other goods. You guys didn't go to fight with us. You guys chickened out. You guys stayed here. So we're just giving your wives and your kids and you go. We're not sharing any of what we captured because we earned it with our own sweat and blood. David would have none of it. He charitably referred to these worthless men as my brothers. <laughs> You'll notice in the passage, not so my brothers. He could have put another term or two in there uh, about these guys rather than brothers. But then he made it quite clear that they could not claim responsibility for this victory they could not claim responsibility that all of the people were safe and that all the goods were still there. They couldn't claim responsibility for that. And therefore, it was not their right to determine how the spoil would be distributed. They had not earned it. God had given it to them. The Lord had given them the victory. The Lord had preserved the people. The Lord had preserved the goods. The Lord was responsible. He will decide through David how the goods will be distributed, not these worthless and evil men. 
And so David pronounced that the law of share and share alike is going to prevail here, or the principle at this moment anyway, is going to prevail. And what is interesting is that this principle clearly has biblical precedence. One of the last acts of Moses before he perished from the scene was to lead Israel in an attack on the Midianites who had attempted to seduce and harm Israel. And they were successful in that attack. And therefore, what to do with all that they had captured from the Midianites as a result of the successful victory? Well, if we turn to Numbers chapter 31, we read at verse 25, Numbers 31, 25, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You and Eleazar the priest and the heads of the fathers' households of the congregation take account of the booty, that was captured both of man and of animal, and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. And levy attacks before the Lord from the men of war who went out to battle, one in five hundred persons, and of the cattle and the donkeys and of the sheep, and take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as an offering to the Lord. So the precedent was a portion goes to the Lord, but the rest is divided between the warriors and the people who didn't go to battle, the congregation. It was a share and share alike principle that already was built in, that God had proclaimed to Moses. And this is the principle that David will follow. And I think this principle is a lesson to us. I think this principle teaches us that whatever an individual's task is in the kingdom of God, what is required is faithfulness in that task and then he or she will receive God's blessing and provision. God does not look at us and say, okay, well, you're in this position, you're in this position, you're in this position, and you're way down here. I don't think I'll give you much. God doesn't operate that way. God does not just bless the missionaries and the preachers. He blesses and rewards all of his faithful people because each has an important role to fulfill. We all are members of the body of Christ, and we know from the passage in Corinthians that it doesn't matter whether you're the toe or the finger or the eye or whatever you are, you're just as important to the body as any other part. So the one who stays home because God has led the person to stay home and to pray and to give to enable the ones to go, they're the ones, as it were, who stay by the stuff, you might say are as essential to the success of advancing God's kingdom as the warrior, as the missionary, or the preacher who goes out to do battle, maybe more directly. We all do battle with the enemy, but more obviously doing battle with the enemy. Those who may even go to a far-off country. One is not greater than another. They're all equal in the eyes of God. In order to prevent this, this problem that David is facing here from reoccurring, David established this principle into a law, the scripture says. It became a law in Israel. And according to the passage we read here in uh, 1 Samuel 30, it said that the law was still in effect in the day that the author wrote the passage there in that portion of 1 Samuel. So again, what we discover here is David is God's man, and David is used by God to express a biblical principle, a principle that comes from God himself to his people, and to literally make it a law, a law of the land. Well, the last part of uh, this chapter 30 
tells us further what David did. And we don't have time to cover it this morning, but let me just say that David not only sees to it that the 200 men who are left at the Brook Bishore, were left at the Brook Bishore, will receive their, their portion, but David is also going to use, do something more with David's spoil that demonstrates his godlike capacity in that position.